Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Pacini. There are innumerable podcasts offering bite-sized ideas and intelligent chat. Thinking Hard and Slow offers something a little different. The opportunity to settle down and listen to an extended philosophical lecture, followed by a discussion digging even deeper into its themes. All our guests are philosophers or related thinkers at the top of their game. Their brief is to talk to intelligent and curious listeners who may know nothing at all about their subject. Series 1 mainly features talks from this year's London lectures on the theme of expanding horizons. We're both celebrating and promoting the ways in which academic philosophy in Britain and America has been broadening its scope in recent decades, engaging with other traditions around the world, new themes and novel methods. This episode features Helen de Cruz, who holds the Danforth Chair in the Humanities at St. Louis University. Her main areas of specialisation are philosophy of cognitive science and philosophy of religion, and she also works on general philosophy of science, epistemology, aesthetics and metaphilosophy, which is about the nature of philosophy itself. After Helen's talk, we'll be launching into a discussion which featured questions from our live online audience. So before we do that, here's Helen's talk on philosophical storytelling. So I want to talk to you about philosophical storytelling and about, in particular, the question, why do philosophers tell stories? So uh, to just give you a roadmap of the talk, I'll first talk about why philosophers use stories and I'll look at thought experiments as a particular kind of stories. You can see stories as thought experiments and you can see thought experiments as stories. So thought experiments are a particular form of tool that philosophers use. And I'll look at why in particular they use thought experiments. And in order to get an idea about why philosophers use thought experiments, I'll review some recent theories of thought experiments. And then I'll uh, look at the mental model theory, which I'll explain in a bit more detail uh, in a moment, as I think the theory that best explains what's going on. But then I'll zoom out and look at these longer stories. So thought experiments tend to be really, really short. Why would we have thought experiments that are really long? I'll give some examples of long thought experiments. Uh, And I will argue that fiction helps us to imagine and to realize philosophical possibilities, and that it allows us to explore and extend the boundaries of the possible. So it is an imagination tool that helps us to envisage and maybe also to realize philosophical possibilities. I could give lots and lots of different examples of stories that philosophers tell, but one that probably, uh, if you're not a professional philosopher, that you may have heard of is Plato's Cave. And this story is very evocative. It's told by Plato in the Republic. And you have to imagine uh, people who are chained by their feet and by their necks uh, at the back of a cave. uh, And the only thing they can see are reflections on the cave wall, which are basically put there uh, because of puppeteers that are walking back and forth behind the wall and are parading all sorts of objects uh, in front of the of the wall such as you know pictures of animals pictures of artifacts pictures of other people 
But then eventually, uh, what you have to imagine then, you're invited to imagine, what if somebody can escape from the cave? This person at first would have difficulties adjusting their, their eyes to the light. And then eventually they'll sort of first look at reflections in the water. And then only all at the end will this person be able to look at the sun. And even then you can't directly look at the sun. But then... If you ask the person, would you like to go back in the cave? They'd say, no, I would not want to go back in the cave. And if this person were to go back in the cave and say, look, what you're seeing is all fake, then what would happen? Maybe the people in the cave, the prisoners would would want to kill this person. So it's an allegory. It's commonly called an allegory, which means you have this image and it stands for something else. And what it stands for or what uh, people commonly, philosophers commonly say it stands for is for education. Where being led out of the cave and being illuminated is being educated. So that's just one example. And just to give you another example, just to warm up, are these delightful short stories by the philosopher Zhuangzi. And the Zhuangzi is a book uh, in Chinese philosophy, 4th century BCE, uh, where you have lots and lots of stories of, uh, for example, Zhuangzi himself. And in this particular story, you have Zhuangzi and his friend Huizhi, and they walk on a bridge on the river Hao. And uh, Zhuangzi says, how happy these fish look darting about. And Huizhi says, but how do you know that the fish are happy? You can't know that. And Zhuangzi says, well, you don't know what I know, so how can you know that I don't know what the fish like? And so on. So this story is a very deep reflection, but at the same time very playful about the nature of of happiness, about the nature of friendship, and also about whether we can ever know what other people or what even non-human animals such as fish are thinking. But why would Zhuangzi put this in a story? Why wouldn't he just say, uh, we don't know, or maybe we can know what fish are thinking? And why would Plato not directly talk about the advantages of an education and the advantages of philosophy in giving us insights into the nature of reality? Why wrap it in a story? I think the puzzle deepens because I don't want to cast aspersions on my discipline, But philosophy, academic philosophy, as done by philosophers who write in journals and books, has become rather narrow and boring. And in spite of that, in spite of the narrowness and boringness, philosophers haven't given up on stories. Quite the contrary, in fact. So Jaco Hintika argued that actually, since the 1960s, philosophers have increasingly relied on intuitions that are elicited by stories short stories uh, that uh, we commonly refer to as thought experiments. So you have boring, boring, boring philosophy paper, arguments, premises, conclusions, and then out of the blue, you have like a short story. And here's just one example of such a story. And again, I could give scores and scores of examples, but it's just one. And it's a thought experiment uh, designed by Hilary Putnam to argue that what uh, that meaning is not purely in our heads. Imagine that you have a guy called Oscar and he lived before we had chemistry, modern chemistry, and he drinks uh, you know, water and he washes his clothes in water and so forth. Now imagine somebody who lives on a planet very similar to ours and you have also the liquid stuff that runs in seas and uh, that you can swim in and that you can drink. However, it doesn't have as a chemical formula H2O, 
but a very much more complex formula that we can just abbreviate as XYZ. Now says Putnam, in this example, is it the case that when Oscar and twin Oscar are referring to water, are they referring to the same thing? And Putnam says no, because even though they don't know it, we know that in the one case it's H2O, in the other case it's XYZ. And even though it doesn't make a difference for their mental representations, it still seems that the meaning is different. So meaning is not in the head alone. And stories like these are very, very common in analytic philosophy. I think the puzzle of why philosophers rely so much on stories is also important and relevant because philosophy traditionally had a very broad uh, scope. So, for example, you have philosophy in the visual or tactile mode, such as these scholars rocks, uh, which are basically forms of found art. They're uh, sort of beautiful rocks with lots of little holes in and uh, the idea is that you look at the, at the scholar's rock and you contemplate it. So it's a kind of visual philosophy. Or you can have Zen gardens where you walk next to and you can see the beautiful lines made of the gravel that is sort of raked into beautiful shapes. Poetry, you have vignettes, you have ramblings. Uh, and so it seems that even though philosophy has narrowed quite a bit, at least as done academically, philosophers still rely a lot on stories. So I'm hoping that I've by now convinced you that there is something special about stories in the philosophical toolbox. And the question then remains about why. Why do philosophers uh, find stories so important? Why do they use them? Now, it is a very big question to ask why uh, philosophers rely on stories. So I'm going to zoom in on one specific kind of story, thought experiments. So I've already given you an example of a recent thought, well, recent in, in the history of philosophy, recent thought experiment, Putnam's uh, H2O thought experiment. But broadly speaking, thought experiments are uh, short stories that are counterfactual. So they are situations that aren't actually happening. Uh, they involve a concrete scenario. So there's something really specific going on. And they have a well-determined cognitive intention, which means they're supposed to convince you of something or they're supposed to give you insight into something or to make you consider something that you may not have considered before. Catherine Elgin, in fact, thinks that all stories, also longer stories, are a form of thought experiments. I don't know if I want to go that far, but I do think that at the very least, thought experiments are stories. And uh, as you would say, as a literary format, they are flash fiction because they are so short. Now, to see what thought experiments do as short stories, I want to look at one example a bit more in detail. I will look at Mung's Child at the Well. So this is another Chinese uh, thought experiment. So thought experiments you see also across the world. This is another important thing to mention, you know, from uh, Ibn Sina's Flying Man to here Mung's Child at the Well. And this is a famous thought experiment that has been lots, lots discussed in Chinese philosophy from about the 4th century BCE. So uh, it occurs in Book 2 of the Mind Mungza, where Mungza wonders whether people are good by nature. And he says that people are good by nature because they have empathy. So I'll just quote here from uh, the Van Norden translation. 
The reason why I say that all humans have hearts that are not unfeeling toward others is this. Suppose someone suddenly saw a child about to fall into a well. Anyone in such a situation would have a feeling of alarm and compassion. Not because one sought to get in good with the child's parents, not because one wanted fame among one's neighbors and friends, and not because one would dislike the sound of the child's cries. So let's analyze this thought experiment in a bit more detail. So notice first that it is in the third person. So imagine someone suddenly saw a child fall, about to fall into a well. So you have to imagine the scene. Then uh, Moza probes your intuitions. Namely, you would have spontaneously a sense of alarm and compassion. Note, though, that he doesn't say that you would spontaneously go and save the child, because clearly we have things like bystander syndrome. People don't spontaneously always go and save the child. But at the very least, you would be unsettled. You'd be distressed. Now, where does this distress come from? Then he reviews a bunch of alternative explanations and he says it's not because you wanted to be getting good with the child's parents or because you wanted to get the approval of the neighbors or even because it would be distressing to you to see that child fall into that well. Rather, the only reasonable explanation, according to Mungse, is that you have a compassionate heart and that you spontaneously have a sense of empathy. And in terms of uh, literary format, uh, what happens in stories like these is what Andy Clark calls sensory motor resonance. What that means is that as a reader, you're put in the narrative space, in the space where the action is, and you see it concretely unfold. So we make all sorts of mental models about what is happening, and that is how we then evaluate uh, the thought experiment and what's happening. Now, to, uh, to situate why Mungse is using this thought experiment, and uh, one thing to say is this thought experiment has been discussed very, very much because the Mungse was part of the books that the scholars uh, in the imperial exam had to learn. And you have, for instance, Wang Yangming and many, many other uh, philosophers writing commentaries on this thought experiment. The broader situating is that human nature is good because Mungse then concludes... From this, we can see that if one is without the feeling of compassion, one is not human. If one is without the feeling of disdain, one is not human. If one is without the feeling of deference, one is not human. If one is without the feeling of approval and disapproval, one is not human. People have these four sprouts or four beginnings. So you have these four emotional beginnings, like having four limbs. To have these four sprouts, yet to claim that one is incapable of virtue, is to steal from oneself. To say that one's ruler is incapable is to steal from one's ruler. So this is against an, a very influential ethical egoist position, namely Yang Zhu. Yang Zhu argued that our ethics should be based on egoism because we spontaneously will always favor ourselves and maybe our immediate family first before we help anybody else. But the thought experiment means to show that this isn't the case because you would feel spontaneously distressed at the sight of a child about to fall into a well or somebody, anybody, basically. 
It is also against the facile power grabbing of warring states' rulers. So these rulers were very unscrupulous. They would uh, put very high taxation. They would conscript people into the army without caring much about the people. And they had zero accountability since there were no democratic elections. So they would just basically do with the people whatever they pleased. And Monks is also saying, look, you have the ruler has within his self, within his heart, a sense of compassion, a spontaneous sense of compassion. And if you deny that, if you say, oh, well, you know, those rulers are just uh, selfish, then it's like stealing from them because you are basically selling them short. So that is the power of this thought experiment and, uh, and what it's doing, what it's doing in terms of argument. So what are thought experiments? Why do philosophers use them? Well, one very influential proposal is John Norton's idea that thought experiments are arguments. And it seems very natural uh, to say that they are arguments. They're just prettily dressed up arguments. Uh, If you think of the child at the well, what's going on is basically you could just put it prosaically as anybody has a sense of compassion uh, spontaneously. They don't give us any insight beyond those of ordinary argumentation. And the question then is why do you tell stories? Why not just lay it out straight? Well, according to John Norton, they make explicit things that we already knew and that we would otherwise not think about. This proposal is interesting, but it doesn't explain all that well what goes on in philosophical thought experiments. So Norton's account has been mainly developed to explain what goes on in thought experiments in science. And even there, it doesn't explain why we rely on it so excessively. Now, some people like Herman Capellen have argued, look, all this appeal to thought experiments and beautiful stories that elicit intuitions, is just bad and we should just abandon talking about our intuitions, for instance, in this case, our intuition that, yes, people would spontaneously have a sense of alarm and distress. We shouldn't do that. Uh, and we should just, you know, uh, try to try to be on more solid ground. But I think it denies a lot of the enduring appeal of thought experiments like the child at the well. Why is it so popular? Why do philosophers across the centuries talk about it? The same with Plato's cave, like what makes this story so alluring? So I think the allure of thought experiments is not explained with this account of thought experiments arguments. Here is another possibility. This possibility has been offered by J.R. Brown. And again, it is an account that is about philosophy of science mainly. J.R. Brown argues that thought experiments give us an insight into the truth. And a priori, so you're basically, you're sitting in your couch, you're doing thought experiments, you don't even have to go and experiment, and you just get these insights. Here's one example, and he looks at these scientific examples, and many of them are very, very impressive. So there's these thought experiments by Galileo, And by uh, Einstein, here is Galileo's thought experiment where he never actually did this, uh, or at least as far as we're aware, go to the Tower of Pisa and drop a heavy object and a light object. And what would happen? Well, Aristotelian physics says that these objects, uh, the, the heavy object will come first and the lighter object will take a little bit longer. But if that's true, said Galileo, then what if we tie them together with a piece of string? Would uh, the rope go taut? Maybe the rope would go taut because, you know, the heavy thing would go would go faster or the lighter 
would go lighter and then it would go like this or maybe it wouldn't because basically because of the string they would make like one big object and then the mass should be combined so you get a contradiction so Aristotle's idea that these things fall at different speeds doesn't work uh, and that's why they should all fall at the same speed. So this is an interesting idea, but it's not very clear how uh, this applies to philosophical fiction, where we're not really seeming to do a priori truths. So here's a slightly different take related to Brown, but I think more applicable to philosophy. Maybe thought experiments and stories in, in general provide us with truths about the human condition. So Iris Murdoch uh, in, in Sovereignty of Good and Friedrich Nietzsche have uh, both argued this. So Nietzsche has argued this in The Birth of Tragedy. Murdoch uh, says, we are in fiction represented with a truthful image of the human condition in a form which can be steadily contemplated. Now, how do you do that? Why, why have fiction? Why not just look at biographies or something? Well, it's precisely according to Nietzsche because we transform or distort elements that are part of everyday life, that we get a closer view of the truth. So fiction transfigures the truth by means of an illusion. So I think that this is not implausible and it certainly explains why lots of works of great fiction, like for example, War and Peace, why we continue to be intrigued and enthralled by these works and why they are so philosophically significant. But I think at the same time that this is too limiting. So if you take the thought experiment of H2O XYZ, is that really all it does to talk about insights into the human condition? I don't think so. And also, does it give us insights into truth? Again, it's just not clear how this would work. So that's why I am personally a fan. I'm not going to give an elaborate defense for why I favor this view. But I think that the view that thought experiments are mental models is a plausible view. So according to this idea, which has been defended by many, many people like Tama Gantler, Rachel Cooper, and Nina Misevich, if you pronounce his name like that, thought experiments are mental models that help us to gain insight. So what is a mental model? Well, you make mental models all the time. They are fictional scenarios that you play around with. We often make mental models about our everyday lives. So for example, you think, what am I going to cook tonight? How about fish and pasta? That's a while ago. And then you start thinking about the fish that's in your freezer and the pasta, and you, you act out this mental model. So you're not at this point making fish with pasta, but you make this mental model and it allows you to plan, to predict. And in fact, a lot of our thinking works like this. So according to uh, some autobiographical studies where people sort of were at random asked to, to sort of say, like, what are you thinking about now? About half of our thoughts, our everyday thoughts, are not directly about stimuli in our environment, but are just sort of like stimulus independent. So we make these mental models all the time. Psychologists think that it is adaptive of us to do so. It's adaptive uh, for us to, to be making these models. Now, that is promising, I think, but it's not a complete account. So it's not clear to me if we see Plato's cave as a mental model, what is a mental model of? 
You could say it's a mental model of education, but why make a mental model of education that is so far removed from what it talks about? I think here, in order to get a better idea of what is happening, we have to look at the form of the fiction. We have to look at what the fictions are actually doing for us philosophically to get a better insight. And here is, I think, uh, an aspect to philosophical stories that hasn't received much attention in the literature. Namely, why are some philosophical stories short and others long? So Francis Bacon is known for his new organon, for his uh, sort of explanation of the scientific method. But he also writes this utopia where people come to this island and everything on the island is organized in a scientific way. And Thomas More's utopia is, it's, it's an account, a long account about an ideal society. So these are both utopian novels. Then you have Margaret Cavendish's The Blazing World, which is a really interesting, like this is often seen as one of the earliest science fiction novels, where she proposes, again, a sort of world where you have an empress who rules over a whole bunch of technocrats. So you have like worm man and bear man, and they have all sorts of uh, specializations and they look at telescopes and microscopes and they have scubas and, and other such things. So it's really cool. You also have dystopians, such as uh, John Orwell's 1984, uh, that don't particularly want to give you a rosy picture, but can give you a picture of what could go horribly wrong in certain aspects of society, if society were organized a certain way. I want to look in more detail at one longer philosophical story that was hugely influential for instance, also in Western philosophy in the 17th century. But it's a lot older. It is by an uh, Arabic philosopher uh, who lived in Spain uh, for a large part of his life, Hai ibn Yakshan by Ibn Tufail. So the story is as follows. So you have a boy and he arrives on an island. It's not very clear how. It could be that he arrives in a little basket on the island, but it's a very temperate island. It lies close to India, so the temperature is the same all around. There's a female gazelle who uh, finds him, takes care of him, and then eventually, as he grows older, he learns to take care of himself. Then, as Hai grows older, he reflects and learns natural history, and then he has a few sort of events in his life, like his mother dies, or his foster mother, the gazelle, dies. And then he dissects her, trying to see, like, why doesn't she move anymore? And he has this very empirically bent mind. Uh, so he, he gets all this amazing natural history, including about how a body works from the dissection. And then eventually he gets the idea, like, why is there everything at all? Like, is there, why is there motion? Like, there must be a first mover. So he gets all these arguments, basically, for the existence of God. Once he realizes God exists, he engages in all sorts of practices to get closer to God, like dietary practices, which look a lot uh, like eating halal and uh, the sort of uh, Sufi spiritual practices, because even to fail was also engaged in Sufi practices. Eventually, a man from another island comes uh, to his island, Absal. And Absal, at first, he's very afraid. He's never seen another human being in his life. But Absal teaches him to speak. And he then says, look, uh, Absal says to Hai, you are so wise. Why don't you come and instruct the people in my city? 
And he does, in fact, he goes there. And it's a big disappointment because the people do not want to live this pure life that uh, Hai has. And Hai ends up being very disgusted and disappointed and goes back to his island together with Absal, where they live this pure, happy, spiritual life. Now, what does this story do? So commonly, it's seen as a story that aims to show that it is possible within the span of one lifetime to learn everything you want to learn about the natural world and about God without tradition. So you don't need the Quran or the Hadith or any theologians or anybody to tell you anything. You can learn it all from your own reason and from experience. And it offers an alternative vision to what happens in practice, because in practice, humans do need tradition. But even to fail seems to say it's possible to learn directly through experience. And here is a quote uh, from the end of the book. High now understood the human condition. He saw that most people are no better than unreasoning animals and realized that all wisdom and guidance, all that could possibly help them, was contained already within the words of the prophets and the religious traditions. Not of this could be different. There was nothing to be added. So the idea being that it's possible to learn these things all through experience, but that in practice, because people are so unreflective and so set in their ways, that it's a good thing we do have something like tradition and uh, the testimony of prophets. Now, I think that if you went the way of John Morton, who says that uh, thought experiments are arguments, this argument would be incredibly weak. <laughs> what would the argument be? that it's possible for a rare, single individual to come to all these insights on his own. I also do not think that it is any sort of revelation of the truth, of a platonic world of truths, or even of the human condition. Because for one thing, we know that people, had Hai survived, he would not have been this star theologian. We know that people who grow up in isolation and manage to survive do not develop the skills and insights Hai has. But I do think that as a counterfactual story, it works as a mental model. It is a scenario of how a fictional character can reach a profounder truth than is possible through tradition. And in fact, this ties into uh, the sort of skepticism that Sufi Muslims had and still have about tradition. Uh, so they think that the problem with tradition is, they call this taklid. Taklid in Arabic means something like slavish imitation, that it doesn't really give you all that much insight and that actually own experience, direct experience, is, is a superior form of knowledge. Uh, and so even though the story doesn't work as an argument and doesn't work as an insight into human condition, it works as this mental model of exploring what could what could happen or how somebody could get all this knowledge about God, etc., all on his own. This ties into a notion that Eric Schließer developed, uh, the notion of philosophic prophecy. So philosophic prophecy is uh, what he calls a kind of secular prophecy. It is not primarily about offering predictions. It is about creating a possible future. And long-form philosophical fiction can do that by offering the reader possible alternatives. So if you think about, for instance, 1984. So 1984 is not a utopia. 
It's the, the opposite. It's a dystopia. But by showing what could possibly happen if you have an enormous role of uh, kind of uh, privacy uh, being thrown out the window and huge governmental oversight, that you are in a terrible situation. And by prophesying this, the author, Orwell, wants to say, look, you don't want to go this road. You don't want to do this. This is not the future you want. So by telling the story, you're influencing the future. You're influencing it either by warning against it and hoping that maybe that will make it not happen, or by as a kind of creating its own conditions to make it happen. Like, look, it's possible. It's possible that we have a future that looks very different from the road that we are on. Try this for yourself. Try to imagine a government that works well, that you think is an ideal government, just like that. I invite you, maybe not during this talk, but at some point to try this for yourself. And you'll find that it's very difficult to come up with something original. You'll usually fall into something. Like if you don't like a lot of governmental influence, then you'll think of something small government or maybe anarchist. Uh, but you'll always fall into things that already have been thought about. When we think about solutions to all sorts of things like infectious disease, climate change, etc., then we use philosophical assumptions that are already going on in the wider world. We tend to have philosophical assumptions, whether we want to or not. As Mary Midgley put it, philosophy, like speaking prose, is something we have to do all our lives, well or badly, whether we notice it or not. And this is indeed an ironic thing that we have philosophy anyway, whether we want it or not. So here's, here's one example. Like, it's very hard to think a world without capitalism. In fact, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, as you can see those people, I think, in Venice with the Louis Vuitton bags. So how do you change that? Well, one way to imagine a different future is to tell a story. Narrative fictions. Narrative fictions give us all sorts of mental imagery and they give us emotional engagement. And we know from empirical studies that the quality of the narrative fiction influences that. So if you have a more developed story, then people's emotional engagement with it and the thoughts that they can get, the sort of alternative scenarios they can draw up with, will also be richer. So sometimes we need to have a longer thought experiment. We need to have an entire novel to make a philosophical idea more vivid and plausible. So there's all sorts of, of instances and examples of that. I recently came upon this magazine, which is recently launching, and it's called Solar Punk Magazine. And solar punk is a new literary genre, just like steampunk is where everything is driven by steam and diesel punk has diesel as the main fuel. Solar punk has solar energy. So in, these are stories where people have basically solved the climate crisis. Now, why would you want stories where the main source of energy is solar energy? For the makers of the magazine, the time has never been more urgent for an explosion of utopian stories to light a path forward out of the darkness which humanity has dug itself. And I think in that respect that even though dystopias can be very interesting and helpful, that sometimes it's incredibly powerful to just imagine a different future, an alternative future. Just imagining it, trying to make it plausible. Does it look plausible in a fiction? Then maybe we can think, yes, this could be a reality and we can do it. 
So a concrete example of this is this novel by Ursula Le Guin, The Dispossessed, which later got the interesting subtitle, An Ambiguous Utopia. It's a very interesting novel. It basically follows the adventures of Shevek, uh, who is uh, the main character. And he comes from this uh, satellite called Anaris. Anaris is like a small, dusty, puny little moon. And you have this big, lush planet called Uros. Anaris is an anarchist utopia. And Uros is much more, uh, it has many more resources, but it is capitalist and an equal and basically looks a lot like American society that Le Guin lived in. And on Anaris, you have a society that is based on Kropotkin's anarchism and mutual aid. So you have flesh and blood people, you have not ideal conditions. So uh, at some point, there's even a famine. But Le Guin's idea is that, look, uh, and she also says this in the preface of, of the book novel, if I can make this work in a story uh, with flesh and blood people, like you don't have to have put angels in your utopia, because then, of course, it's going to work, but just normal people then we can maybe envisage, is it possible to have high level of technological and cultural sophistication and yet have an anarchist society based on the principles of Pyotr Kropotkin? So philosophical fiction provides us with elaborate mental models, and those models allow us to explore and expand philosophical possibilities. Fictions allow us to get loose from the world as it is, because if you are thinking, you can think of all sorts of scenarios, but even so, your scenarios are always going to be heavily structured by reality. I mean, think about any fantasy novel. It's always going to be very heavily structured by what is really the case and reality. If you are in a fiction, you can try to get at least somewhat loose of that and you can provide an anchor for thought. Because a thought experiment or a longer story can provide you with a sort of fixing point that you can go on and you can look at. And that way you're not sort of constrained by reality. So it frees you and it helps you to challenge particularly the philosophical preconceptions that we have in our everyday lives. And that gives us also a shared space of what-if thinking. Because another issue that makes philosophical fiction different from, like, thinking up things on your own, like, if you're just thinking up some scenarios of your own, I don't just mean the mundane, like, what am I going to cook tonight? Maybe fish with pasta, but something else. As long as you're not sharing that vision with other people, then it can't really become this sort of point where you focus your thoughts around. But rather, if you have a publicly available story, like Plato's cave, or like Mung's child at the well, it allows us to think about it collectively, to envision alternatives collectively. And I think, for this reason, fictions will remain an enduring part of philosophical thinking, and this is why fictions and storytelling are so central to philosophy. I'm actually going to start with one broad question from one of our, our regular viewers who goes by the name of Digital Gnosis. And he just says, one of the main problems with thought experiments, the main pitfalls, biases and places uh, we commonly go wrong. Now, I mean, that's a broad question. So what I'm going to do with um, Mr. Gnosis's permission is I'm going to uh, sort of break it down a little bit. I mean, I suppose, first of all, a major criticism is that all they are really doing is eliciting intuitions and and why should that be considered to be philosophically useful and this of course is particularly the case with a lot of 
thought experiments in ethics. When people say that of thought experiments, they're, they're simply intuition pumps which aren't really uh, giving us anything more substantial to, to work on. What, what's your response to that? I think that an important rule of thought experiments certainly is eliciting intuitions, but I think it is not the only rule. Because then if that's the only rule, for one thing, there are thought experiments that don't elicit clear intuitions either way. And that are still discussed a lot. Like, think about Zhuangzi's fish. So what's the intuition here? Like, does Zhuangzi know that the fish are happy? Does he not know? Like, honestly, I have used this in class discussion. And some of my students say, sure, Zhuangzi knows the fish are happy. Because if they're darting around playfully like that, why shouldn't they be? Like, they're, they're animals like us. And, and they look playful. So we can make that inference. Or people say, no, you cannot know. You cannot even know if the person sitting next to you is happy. Uh, like you can never know what goes on inside somebody's mind. So, so the question then is, why is this a good thought experiment? Because I think by, by virtue of the idea that thought experiments elicit intuitions, this would be a terrible thought experiment because there is no clear intuition elicited. I think here that the thought experiment just makes you think about the different options, like makes you at least consider uh, Zhuangzi's reply to this thing about the fish, like, you know, I know, and, and you don't know what I know, so, you know, you, you can't even say what the limits of my knowledge are. And it goes in further with uh, an Ian Kidd who wrote the reflection on that thought experiment for the book, says maybe it's about philosophical friendship. Like, you know, what's the value of being able to discuss and disagree with your friends? So I think that is sort of demonstrated by these stories not so much by intuitions, but rather by just putting you in the action and giving you a sense of, of what's going on. So I think a thought experiment that elicits a certain vivid scenario, not necessarily giving intuitions, although they can do that, is a good thought experiment. A thought experiment that doesn't give you any sort of vivid scenario, I think is less succeeded. I think maybe this is also why Plato's cave is such a good thought experiment. Like, it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't elicit intuitions except like, oh my God, I don't want to go back in the cave. Like, maybe that's the, the clear intuition elicited. But it is so alluring. So I think the allure is certainly an important part of it. i got to follow, follow up on that a little bit then, because um, you talked about the important role in opening up new possibilities, getting us to think about things differently. Um, does that mean that the kind of thought experiment which is just more straightforwardly eliciting an intuition, not by really getting us to think about anything different or expand our possibilities, isn't a particularly good one. I mean, and I'm going back to the Peter Singer's Pond one, you know, I mean, this is a very famous one. The whole power of the thought experiment is precisely its uh, situation we can readily imagine. That for him, the power of that thought experiment seems to be that the situation elicits such a straightforward and obvious um, intuition that you should wade in and help. That gives him the anchor from which to elicit a general principle of ethics. Now, is it just that this is a, another different, equally good way for thought experiments to work? Or do you think those thought experiments are less interesting or valuable in some way? So Peter Singer has written one of the reflections in the book and the, the thought experiment is included in the book. And one of the reasons that I wanted to include it is that it changed so many people's lives. So, so many people, they, you know, this in a philosophy seminar, they hear the thought experiment and they think this is terrible. And then they start giving uh, aid to people who need it. 
Uh, and you could make all sorts of quibbles about, you know, is this well distributed or, you know, should governments do it and stuff like that. But the thought experiment has an undeniable power. I would say I'm a pluralist about thought experiments in that I think they can be argumentatively very powerful, but they don't have to be. Like there's many good thought experiments that don't elicit like anything like such a strong, convincing argument. And that are still great thought experiments. But I think in this case, uh, it is still a mental model. So it's a mental model because it, it makes it Basically, what it does is it looks at situations where people are in distress, but because they're far away, you don't see them. Uh, you, you might think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, to do anything. Uh, but if you're there and you see this child drowning, it's like this immediate visceral response. Uh, so it, it acts as a mental model to like, you know, if you if you didn't help or if you're going to help there, then you should also help in other situations. So here it works argumentatively, but I don't think that that's all thought experiments do. Towards the end of the talk, you were talking more about longer thought experiments in terms of longer fictions. And you, you talked about the value there that they enable us to imagine different futures and different possibilities. Now, a lot of the shorter thought experiments we're familiar with aren't about alternative futures, for sure. Um, so I just wanted to sort of check how you're thinking, you know, if you were to, sort of, if we were to go back to an earlier thought experiment, such as the one around uh, water, where... Everything else in this is the same in two different worlds, except for the fact that the stuff that behaves exactly like water in one world is H2O, and in the other world it is a different chemical composition. And this is an argument about the way language works. Um, can you just sort of like say a little bit about how the reflections you developed in your talk would help us to understand better what's going on in that thought experiment? This thought experiment, again in general, Thought experiments help us to get loose of certain preconceptions. And one preconception you might have is that whatever meaning is, is just in the head. So the sort of internalist position. And in order to get us loose from that, you get this really weird outlandish scenario where you have H2O and XYZ. Now that's all it does. It wants to sort of get us loose from our philosophical preconceptions about meaning being in the head. And actually, you don't need anything like a long thought experiment. Like you could write a whole story with, you know, twin Oscar going off on adventures, but it wouldn't do anything. The thing with alternative futures, I think, is particularly for long form philosophical fiction. I think a lot of long form philosophical fiction looks at sort of alternative things that we can do, alternative ways we can live. Uh, but a short thought experiment like that can have much more modest aims of just, you know, still loosening our preconceptions and still giving us this anchor uh, for our thinking uh, without, you know, all the lofty aims like, and now we're going to change the world. Like, yeah, that's not, that's not Putnam's aim. Okay, I've got a comment um, from John Kaleka, which is, I'm going to sort of turn into a question. It's a slightly uh, cryptic one here. The stories from different viewpoints, the Greeks could make imperialism look good. And I think what John's getting at here, apologies if I've got you wrong, John, is, is a thought I had when you were talking about how these thought experiments can help us to challenge our philosophical preconceptions. So I think what John's suggesting here is actually aren't they often just simply reflecting those preconceptions back? And I thought it was interesting, the example mm -hmm. you gave of the life of High, um, which I think is one of the translations of that, that story, the guy who's on the island and brought up by the animals and everything. As you said, Funnily enough, he ends up coming to believe things which are remarkably 
um, similar to the kind of things a Sufi Muslim of the 12th century would believe. He doesn't come to believe things which are are radically different. And so it seems like in that thought experiment, of course, the, the preconceptions of the person writing it and the person reading it are kind of, they're very obviously very, very still there. So, I mean, is that a, a bit of a challenge to your view that this is about freeing us from our preconceptions? Can't we, we just bring the preconceptions to them, don't we? Yes, it's really important to see this also within a public context as a way for us to be uh, discussing together. Um, so just thinking about a, a few loose examples. So in the case of Hai, indeed, it's remarkable how Hai completely on his own, on the island by himself, comes to the idea that God is one, you know, so the unity idea, which is very central to Islam, praying five times a day, the dietary restrictions are halal, and so on, even stricter because he becomes a vegetarian. But the idea here is that there is a disagreement. So, so many Muslims believed and believe that it is important that you have something like tradition, like the Quran is, 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 is sacred, etc. And you wouldn't deny that. So even Tufail wouldn't deny that. But the idea is like, do you need it for religion? And that's the disagreement. So he's trying to pull people loose from this idea that you really need the Quran and the Hadith and, uh, you know, the Sharia law, etc. And you could just pull yourself loose from that and see that it's possible in this thought experiment, in this, in this mental model, to come on it completely on your own. I'm thinking just of another example. So you have Nietzsche who uh, in several books like uh, The Gay Signs, All Zosprach, Zarathustra, etc., uh, he goes on about, look, you have customary morality, Christian customary morality, and how could things be different? And he sort of comes up with his own sort of uh, moral ideas, and he does do that in the, in the format of stories, like particularly in the genealogy of morals, he talks about like, here is actually how it happened. Here's how the priests took control and how they, you know, pushed this, shoved this compassion morality down our throats. Uh, and so Nietzsche, even though you could sort of suddenly see there were other people like Nietzsche who had these ideas, sort of like uh, libertarian, uh, I don't know, this is like a modern label to put on Nietzsche, obviously. But this sort of idea of, you know, the lone powerful individual, certainly he wasn't the only person who thought about that. But he is arguing against what he sees as a prevailing conception of morality. So it, you're right, you're absolutely right that we will always bring our own preconceptions. That's why fantasy, as I was saying earlier, that's why you have Christmas in Harry Potter and, and stuff like that. You will always come into things that are remarkably similar to, to, to the current situation. But you can still make a few tweaks. So even though you're not radically in a different world, you can make several tweaks that are philosophically relevant and that are going to be important in a dialectical context. I'm going to go back to digital notices kind of meta question, if you like, and I'm going to disaggregate one more time and ask one more thing, which here's actually basically the main problems with thought experiments, pitfalls. And I think another one which is perhaps mentioned is that you can devise thought experiments which actually lead you to completely opposite conclusions. So you gave the one, for example, of Mengs as well. And the idea there is we've got a very powerful example where we imagine ourselves into the situation and we think, well, of course, we know there are people who are psychopaths and, you know, these people wouldn't, probably wouldn't count as human in, in Mengs' sense. But anyone who's not a psychopath has this instinctive 
sympathetic reaction, which is, you know, Adam Smith, David Hume, lots of people who agreed with this. Then you've got Plato, the ring of Gyges, right? The thought experiment would be what would happen if you would give someone a ring which would make them invisible? And the idea there is that, that people are very compellingly made to believe that if we were to make completely invisible, we would soon be sort of like taking advantage of everyone, behaving selfishly and being evil. And so it would seem that, you know, you can make a very persuasive thought experiment, which leads you to one conclusion. You can make a very inventive thought experiment, which leads you to another conclusion. So does that not show that these are actually ways of just leading us to the conclusion the clever writer of the thought experiment wants us to, to lead? Or, or is there a way of sensibly adjudicating between these two? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure if I can answer the question definitely, because this is just an enduring question that people have asked about thought experiments. Um, so indeed, it does seem that some thought experiments like Peter Singer's Drowning Child and Mung's as well, it goes very clearly in one direction. The other thought experiments, like who knows what would happen? Take as another example, Locke's Prince and Cobbler. So you have a prince and he goes into the body of a cobbler. Apparently in the original one, the cobbler doesn't go into the body of a prince. So yeah, that was, that was Locke. Uh, the cobbler goes who knows where. But uh, the question is then, would it still be the same person? And he says, yeah, it's the same person, but not the same man or something. Like, But who knows? Like, I don't know. Uh, I don't have any clear intuitions. So I think in this case, I think this sort of, the fact that many enduring thought experiments don't have a definite conclusion and people keep on arguing about them is actually evidence that thought experiments aren't just arguments and that they aren't just a sort of providing us with an idea of the truth. Like, because if they gave us access to the truth, then it seems like a good thought experiment would have a definite answer. And even so, you could say, so some thought experiments, people thought for the longest time, have a definite answer, such as um, Gettier-style thought experiments where, you know, you have the sort of thing like, I'm just going to give a simple Gettier case of, uh, you look at the clock and the clock says uh, it's nine o'clock. And you think you form the belief justifiably it's nine o'clock, but the clock standing still all this time. So in fact, it is not nine, it, it, it is nine o'clock, but it could have been any other time. Like, do you know that it's nine o'clock? And it turns out there is some cultural variability. So there is a lot of, uh, Edouard Machery has done some recent work on this and other people too, uh, but it still seems there is individual variation. So some people say, yes, the person looking at the clock that stood still for exactly 24 hours knows that it's nine o'clock. And that seems interesting and strange that there is this individual variation there's also cultural variation in some thought experiments so i think the fact that you don't have like a definite answer indicates that they're not just arguments or insights into truth they're rather mental models and it's actually not that surprising that mental models lead us to different conclusions i think it really depends on the case so with some thought experiments the fact that we don't get a conclusion like, for example, imagine people were like amoebas. I forgot who, who had this thought experiment, but I don't know what even to think about people being like amoebas. So I don't know what, what the outcome would be. So it really depends, I think. 
sometimes it's fruitful for further conversation and we can discuss about why did intuitions diverge, but sometimes the thought experiment is just muddled and doesn't for that reason give a clear intuition. And that makes it not so good a thought experiment because if you don't even know what's giving the deferring intuitions, then you don't know, then it's just not that useful, I think. I tend to think a lot of these thought experiments are kind of not arguments, and uh, that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. Mental models is a nice way of putting it. They give us something to think about and to work on, but, you know, uh, the thinking is done with the model. The model hasn't done all the thinking with you. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Um, I'm going to go back to digital notice. Actually, twice I've actually not really put this question to you. I've used it as an excuse to... Um, mention some of the things I might think are biases and problems, but maybe one or two of what you think the key pitfalls, biases, and ways we go wrong with thought experiments. What do we need to look out for if we want to use them correctly? One of the things I've noticed when compiling this massive list of 42 thought experiments is that I think sometimes they just age really badly. Like take Jim and the Indians by, I think, Bernard Williams. Bernard Williams is a fantastic philosopher, but I don't know. There is something worrisome about that thought experiment. So sometimes a thought experiment ages badly because of racial stereotypes and, you know, various other reasons why why it doesn't age well. I think a thought experiment, uh, you just have to be careful about, you know, what are you wanting to do with it and what sort of elements do you do you bring into it? So I think at the very least, you have to think like, what is the thought experiment going to do for me? What is it going to accomplish? It isn't necessarily the case that they have to give clear intuitions, although it is certainly helpful if they do, uh, or if they're evocative in some way. I think that that's, that's really the hallmark of good thought experiments, that they they give you a sense of, of being there almost, like... Take Schwanz's butcher. So he has this thought experiment of this butcher who is there cutting up an ox in front of a king. And there is something beautiful and evocative about that thought experiment, although, yeah, I don't know, it's not vegan friendly. Uh, But it's still, it puts you there in the action and it gives you ideas about skill and what makes skill so important. And Schwanz argues that what skill actually is, is ultimately losing yourself in the action. And the thought experiment succeeds beautifully in doing that, even though it doesn't give you any argument for why you should accept what the butcher is saying at that point. You mentioned in the talk that thought experiments appear in kind of all philosophical traditions. Now, this did make me think because um, a lot of people, I mean, increasingly people are appreciating the fact that if your background, say, is in Western philosophy, there is a hell of a lot you can get from non-Western traditions. But one of the reasons why people have been resistant to thinking, in effect, that we're doing the same thing when we're doing Chinese, Indian, whatever philosophy, is that it appears, at least superficially, that the manner of the philosophizing, the styles and the methods are very, very different. Now, the fact that you've identified thought experiments as something that is common to all of them, does that point to a way of understanding how it is or why it is that we can think of all these different traditions as being all philosophy, despite the fact there are clear differences in in style and approach. Is thought experiments a kind of clue to an important commonality? I'm inclined to say yes, because if I think of 
major philosophical traditions, they will have thought experiments. And the thought experiments are also centrally important to, to debates. Like it's not all the things that people talk about, but people keep on coming back to it. Like take Ibn Sina's Flying Man. So Ibn Sina's Flying Man is an interesting one because he, he mentions this thought experiment at least three times uh, in his writings. And he in one of them, he says, this is a pointer and a reminder. And what he actually wants to say is that the soul is not dependent on the body, that you could have a soul without a body. So according to Aristotle, you can't have a soul without a body. When you have the soul is basically like the, the form of the body. But Ibn Sina argues, like, imagine that there is a man who's created all at once and suspended in the air. and He can't see anything and he can't. He's not aware of his own body. Would he still affirm his own existence? And he says, yes, he would affirm his own existence. And that's why, uh, you know, the activity of the soul doesn't seem to be dependent uh, on the body. And it's really interesting uh, how much discussion there is about does it work and, and what is it showing. And I think that these sorts of this this is an important tool. It's not the only tool that we see cross culturally. So another thing that I would say that you see in, in most philosophical traditions is just sort of interacting with other people that you disagree with. Mungsa, for example, explicitly argues next to this, this thought experiment, he will also explicitly argue against Yang Zhu and say, look, uh, ethical egoists are wrong. Uh, we are not purely selfish. We, we care for other people. And he uses the thought experiment to do it too. But next to that, he will also just argue against, uh, and there's so many other things that philosophers do cross-culturally. And I find it, you know, I've been teaching now less commonly taught philosophical traditions for a while. And it seems to me like the, the students don't, like, sure, the writing is a bit unfamiliar. But then if you read Descartes with, with students, or if you read Plato with students, it's also different. So even within Western philosophy, there is such a wide range of different ways of arguing that I think I, I don't even see like, this is distinctively Western philosophy because any sort of thing you can find in many different philosophical traditions. It's a bit vague, but I'm just meaning to say there is a big diversity even within the Western tradition. I'm going to take another audience question from Richard G, which is, could you speak to the ability of different genres to highlight different topics? Is there one genre which is best suited to be used as a thought experiment? And it's interesting you talk about science fiction, and I think science fiction is often the go-to genre for philosophers uh, looking for uh, something to work with. Do different genres do different things? Are there bad genres for philosophy? There are genres that lend themselves very straightforwardly to philosophizing. Philosophers love science fiction. Not everybody, but you know, many philosophers love science fiction. And certainly one of the reasons is that you can engage in philosophical speculation so easily. And the same with fantasy. So fantasy also gives you the opportunity to create like possible worlds that, that are importantly different. But I think it is also certainly possible to just use literary fiction, so not genre fiction. Uh, and Iris Murdoch is a good example of using such stories also in her philosophical writing about, you know, like how, for example, this is a specific example of hers. You have this uh, 
this um, mother-in-law who doesn't like her daughter-in-law. But then she thinks, look, I should just look at her differently. And she makes this effort to look at the daughter-in-law in a most positive light. And it helps. It makes her, she sees her differently and, and the relationship becomes better. So I think certainly literary fiction is also very suitable. I think there's actually no genre that is that is out of bounds or that would be bad uh, so Carrie Jenkins, for instance, just wrote a crime thriller that I haven't read yet. I'm excited about. Uh, so you can use any sort of genre, even genre like crime thriller doesn't seem to me like. But certainly you would be able to raise philosophical questions there too, because philosophy is just basically the sorts of tools that we use as, as that's Mitchley's conception of, you know, going about life and thinking about you know, all sorts of questions, highbrow and lowbrow as we go about our lives. And, and any kind of literature, any kind of genre can get at that. Quite early in your talk, you quoted something I think Stephen Clark was talking about. I think the phrase was sensory motor resonance. Um, there seems to be something important here about the feeling of being there. And that's something which is almost like physical. It's almost embodied and and that goes against the image a lot of people have of philosophy as cold ratiocination thinking as coolly and calmly as possible now again some people might use that as a reason to think we should be suspicious of thought experiments because they do that um, i'm assuming you don't think that can we have too much detachment when we're doing philosophy and are thought experiments and fictions ways of countering that so there's a lot of research that come out the last two, three years on mental imagery. Now, mental imagery is not just visual, so it could also be auditory and even tactile. And we know that even a short scenario, like the man came into the room, the door opened, uh, etc. Uh, in fact, actually, you should say the door opened and the man came into the room is processed more fluently than the other thing where the man came into the room and the door opened because you're thinking like, how, how could this be? And the reason is that we actually do imagine, and we know this interestingly because of studies in human neurodiversity, that there's some people who cannot make mental imagery. So they have what's called aphantasia and they don't see these scenarios play out. But this is a very rare condition maybe affecting like 2% of the population. So the, the vast majority of people do see things play out. And it is, I think, an incredibly powerful tool for philosophy to, to use that. I think philosophy in a sense, and actually uh, philosophers have remarked on this, like, for example, Rudolf Carnap has argued that, you know, even a mood of clarity, even clarity and dispassion, is a mood that philosophy can cultivate and that you can cultivate, for example, with clarity and directness of writing. So I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind as a philosopher when you write, that your reader is not some sort of rational brain in a vat, but an embodied person who has emotions, who has mental imagery, very likely, and who will react in, in all sorts of sensory motor ways, even in something as abstract as reading a philosophical text. And we can use uh, these things to our advantage. Now you might say, isn't that something to be suspicious about? So, so, so Nietzsche, for example, said, create a mood. If you create a mood, you don't need 
arguments anymore or something like like that's not the exact quote but he says something along those lines and then you might think yeah uh, can moods just replace arguments i don't think they can so i think it's very important to be clear on the arguments but i think next to that that arguments can be given extra weight with these sorts of sensory motor uh, resonances with these these kinds of putting us there and making us experience like what would it be if you saw a child about to fall in a well you would feel distressed like the thought of it uh, would make you feel distressed and that's an important thing to take into consideration when you evaluate the rest of Mung's talk, which doesn't uh, sort of use these dramatic images. Um, but but it's still, the dramatic image is important for the overall argument. Most people ignore my injunction to keep their questions crisp and short and within the 250 character limit. But Paul Fletcher has managed to not only stay within the limit, but get two questions in. So well done, Paul. The first one is about, do you think the appeal of aphorisms is a reader's ability to quickly identify with them on a personal level? So is there any connection between what you're saying about fictions and, and aphorisms? And the second question is, do you have any thoughts on the morality plays of Marlowe, etc.? cetera? Think about morality plays. There are these highly allegorical forms of storytelling where the didactic purpose is absolutely kind of clear. And I wonder how they fit into what, what you're talking about. These are two really intriguing questions. So the first thing about aphorisms. So I think the nice thing about an aphorism is if the aphorism is something that you keep on chewing on, like it's usually very short. And I think that it, it, the nice thing about it is that it isn't immediately like, oh my God, yeah, that's true. Uh, but more like, hmm, I haven't thought of that. It could be true. So it's more like, I think that aphorisms arise our epistemic, they evoke our epistemic emotions, uh, by which I mean emotions to do with uh, with knowledge. So you sort of think like, could this be true? Or how could it be true? Uh, and sometimes, you know, an aphorism is just what, what I would call pseudo deep. So it looks like, like it's deep, but you know, on closer consideration, you think, nah, this just, this just isn't, this, this, there's not, nothing really there. But the fact that we keep on thinking about these aphorisms and, and pondering them, and surely some philosophical texts are mainly aphoristic. If you think about Wittgenstein's uh, philosophical investigations, there's lots of aphorisms there. Or if you think of the Analects, Confucius's Analects, and part of the power of them, I think, is just like you can read them together and in context. But next to that, the individual aphorisms are also just there for you to ponder and reflect on, uh, which is an interesting exercise, I think, to, to sometimes just engage in contemplation in what somebody says. Now, the morality plays by Marlowe, it's kind of interesting, like I have never seen or read one. So he... like. Faustus, for instance, about, you know, the man who does the deal with the devil, like they are explicitly moralizing. And it's kind of interesting to think about, like, why did I see like 20 or so Shakespeare plays? Like I haven't seen one now in more than a year, but I used to go uh, to see Shakespeare plays regularly, including ones that I've already seen earlier, even though they're explicitly less moralizing. So that sort of gets into the idea about what, what art can do philosophically for us and why I think sometimes ambiguities may be better. Like, I mean, if you think about, say, two difficult Shakespeare plays, The Merchant of Venice and Othello, like they have so many difficult themes. People are still debating what their philosophical significance is, but they clearly have a deep philosophical significance. 
precisely because it's so complex, because of the way the characters engage with each other and aren't easily reducible, like, oh, and this person is definitely just bad, although they're all definitely bad, like Iago is definitely horrible. But nevertheless, there's a kind of complexity and ambiguity uh, that doesn't make them, them less philosophically interesting, but in fact, more so. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes to come in this series, so do subscribe on whichever platform you use, leave us a review, and tell your friends about us. You can also watch video versions of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.